Judges 16 is on page 250. And uh, while you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of homework. I know it's early for this, right? Um, Next Sunday, it's going to be a great Sunday. Sunday after that, going to be a great Sunday. We will finish up the book of Judges on that first Sunday in September. Uh, Labor Day weekend Sunday, also known across the nation as High Attendance Sunday. I don't know what's funny about that. But if you're going to be here with us on that Sunday, here's your homework. Between now and then, you've got two weeks, I need you to read the rest of the book of Judges, chapter 17 to chapter 21. I need you to set aside some time and read that. If you will read those chapters, when we come in here Labor Day Sunday, uh, you'll be ahead of the game and it will be tremendously helpful for you, okay? So that's your homework. Finish the book of Judges. Uh, a little tip, don't, don't read the end of Judges on a day when you need a pick-me-up. But uh, if you will do that homework assignment, that'll be great, okay? All right, Judges chapter 16 is where we're going to be today. Several years ago, I played on my church's softball team. And on this one particular night, I stepped up to the plate, I knocked the dirt off my cleats, uh, I swung three times and struck out. I struck out swinging in slow-pitch softball. It was a colossal failure, and I learned a lot from that failure. The main thing I learned from that failure was that I have really awful friends. (laughs) They mocked me, and they teased me, and then they even got my kids in on it, and so my precious, innocent little daughters were hurling insults at me while I sat in the dugout. So if I ever come across as cold or distant to you, it's just because I'm afraid we're going to play softball together one day and you will turn on me. It's self-preservation, really, is what it is. Failure is a great teacher. I've learned a lot from failure, in fact. Uh, It's a frequent teacher for me, perhaps for you as well. And this morning in Judges chapter 16, Samson's failure is going to be our loud teacher We've seen Samson as this struggling figure throughout our time with him. You remember his story starts back in chapter 13, and this is our fourth Sunday in a row now with Samson. Uh, And and Samson often gives us these perplexing visions of God's servant. Uh, On the one hand, he has great strength. He has uh, the power that comes from the Spirit of the Lord. And on the other hand, He goes where his eyes lead him. He devours what he wants. He makes these boneheaded mistakes all the time. So it begs the question, why do we even need Samson's story, a hero so flawed, one so messed up? Well, we we need this story because his failures serve as a warning to us readers. But those failures also shine a spotlight on the goodness of God. Even in Samson's mistakes... And even in your mistakes, we're still going to experience God's faithful love. And so my goal this morning as we wrap up the story of Samson is to encourage you with a picture of God's faithfulness in the face of our unfaithfulness. And to do that, I want to show you in this passage four ways God responds to our sinful failure. What's God do? Whenever you mess it up royally, when you strike out at life, 
How does God respond to you in those moments? Judges 16 gives us powerful insight. So we're going to read Judges 16. I hope you got your Bible open and ready. We're going to take it all in one big bite. So follow along with me as the story of Samson continues. One day, Samson went to Gaza, where he saw a prostitute. He went in to spend the night with her. The people of Gaza were told, Samson is here. So they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. They made no move during the night, saying, at dawn we'll kill him. But Samson lay there only until the middle of the night. Then he got up and took hold of the doors of the city gate, together with the two posts, and tore them loose, bar and all. He lifted them to his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Samson answered her, If anyone ties me with seven fresh thongs that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. Then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh thongs that had not been tried or dried, and she tied him with them. With men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But when he snapped the thongs as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, You have made a fool of me. You lied to me. Come now, tell me how you can be tied. He said, If anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. So Delilah took new ropes And tied him with them. Then with the men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the ropes off his arms as if they were threads. Delilah then said to Samson, Until now you have been making a fool of me and lying to me. Tell me how you can be tied. He replied, If you weave the seven braids of my head into the fabric on the loom and tighten it with the pin, I'll become as weak as any other man. So while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven braids of his head, wove them into the fabric, and tightened it with the pin. Again she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep, pulled up the pin, the loom with his fabric. And then she said to him, how can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you have made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging, She prodded him day after day until he was tired to death. So he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite set apart to God since birth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, Come back once more, he has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. Having put him to sleep on her lap, she called a man to shave off the seven braids of his hair, and so began to subdue him, and his strength left him. 
Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding in the prison. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to celebrate, saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. While they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. But when they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, Put me where I can fill the pillars that support the temple, so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there. And on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, O sovereign Lord, Remember me. Oh God, please strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one, his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. Then his brothers and his father's whole family went down to get him. They brought him back and buried him between Zorah and Eshtol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had led Israel 20 years. All right. That's a lot. Here's how we're going to break it down. I split this chapter into two large chunks. The first chunk, verses 1 through 21, I would call Samson's failure. The second chunk, verses 22 through 31, I would call God's faithfulness. And that's how we're going to handle the passage this morning. I want to take just a quick couple of minutes to summarize and explain the action of Samson's failure in those first 21 verses. Just a couple of quick minutes to summarize that. And then we're going to turn our focus intently on God's faithfulness in the rest of the chapter. Here's the question that's driving us today. Again, remember this. The question is, how does God respond to us in our sinful failures? And Samson gives us a lot of failure to work with in this story. So real quick summary of Samson's failure. Our story opens in the Philistine city of Gaza. And you remember that the Philistines are the rulers over the Israelites. They are oppressors. They are enemies. But because Israel has turned to worship false gods, Yahweh has taken his protection away from them and put them under the oppression of this enemy nation. Samson's job, his lifelong job, is to begin the deliverance of Israel from the Philistines. And so our scene opens in a Philistine city, and there is Samson. And what does he see? He sees a prostitute, and verse 1 tells us he goes into her house. There is, at best, some ambiguity there. 
But if Samson does what Samson has been known to do, he follows his appetite. He's not at that house to play board games. Samson goes in to the prostitute's house. While he's in there, word gets out to the other Philistines. Samson's here. So they set up a group of men surrounding the house and a second group of men at the city gates. They're going to ambush him at sunrise when he steps out of the house in all of his grogginess. Somehow Samson catches wind of this. He leaves in the middle of the night rather than at sunrise. He walks to the city gate and he rips up the city gate with its posts, throws it on his shoulder, and walks away with it. This is hugely symbolic to the Philistines. The destruction of their city gates sends a very clear message. Those city gates are their first source of defense, their most important source of defense against any sort of enemies or marauders that may come through. They need those city gates to determine who can come in and who cannot. And so when Samson destroys the city gates and walks off with them, he's telling these Philistines, you are exposed and you are not safe. Verse 3 tells us he takes those city gates and he walks up a hill that faces another town called Hebron and he plants the gates in that ground. Now, we might think that what Samson is doing here is taunting the Philistines. He's going to take the gates up on the hill and they're going to face Gaza and they'll see the gates up there and realize how big and bad Samson is. That's not what's happening here. I don't think the gates are on the hill as a message to the Philistines. The gates are on the hill as a message to Israel. Imagine you are an Israelite resident of Hebron. And one day, across the valley, on the adjacent hill, you see this weird silhouette against the sky. And you know what you think it looks like, but you think that can't be what it is. And so you go walking towards it, and as you get closer, you realize, yeah, these are some city gates up on this hill. And then as you get closer, you see the sign above the posts, Welcome to Gaza! Samson is delivering a message to Israel's most important city in his day. The time for this pacifism, this capitulation is over. Samson is telling Israel, I'm going to fight the Philistines in my way and I'm going to beat them in my way. It is time for you to prepare for this. It's not a rallying cry trying to recruit troops. Samson never is a leader of men. He only fights on his own. So we go from Gaza then to this town in the valley of Sorek and we meet another woman in Samson's life. Her name is Delilah. This is Samson's third love interest, so to speak, in the Samson saga. Now, in his relationships, in the Samson story, he spans the spectrum of female relationships. Remember in chapter 14, first he has a wife. Then here in chapter 16, he has a prostitute. And also in chapter 16, now he has a mistress. Delilah is different from the other two women, different in this way. First of all, she has a name. We're not told the name of the Timnah woman, nor the prostitute in Gaza, but Delilah has a name. Here's another difference between Delilah and the others. She's the only one that we're told Samson truly loves. His heart is chasing after this woman. One more thing you and I as the readers know about Delilah that Samson did not, she is a cold-hearted mercenary. 
the Philistines come, we will pay you loads of cash if you will just discover for us the secret of Samson's strength. It's just like the whole riddle scene in chapter 14 revisited again, only this time Samson doesn't know there's a game afoot. And so Delilah manipulates Samson knowing that he loves her nags him and nags him. The same verb is used of Delilah that's used of the Timnah woman, his wife in chapter 14. In chapter 14, she presses. In chapter 16, Delilah presses until Samson breaks and he tells the secret. It's a weird game, isn't it? That sort of back and forth. Men hiding to see what happens when Samson wakes up with these different sort of attacks against him. And Samson continues to play it. You would think at some point Samson would wisen up and say, hey, something fishy is going on here. I'm not so sure about this. But he never does. And why is that? Well, the text doesn't tell us explicitly. My best guess, feel free to toss it out, he's really in love. And at the point that he divulges his secret to Delilah, he's ready to set aside his calling from the Lord his vows to the Lord, and just settle down and have a normal life in the valley of Sorek with his wife Delilah. So he tells her this secret, I think, because he's ready to be done with what the Lord has called him to do. He tells her the secret, he goes to sleep, he wakes up shorn. And what is his failure in this story? Samson's failure, ultimately, is not divulging the secret of his strength as if his hair had some kind of magic power. It doesn't. Samson's failure is in abandoning his vows to God. He says no to the Lord, no to the call on his life, no to the work God has given him to do, and he says yes to what his eyes and his heart just chases after, namely Delilah. And so Samson is a mirror for Israel. He's just like them. I mean, think about it. Samson, like Israel, is brought up by God out of nothingness. He's chosen by God, not based on his merit, but just because of God's grace. And then, like Israel, Samson is called to be separate and to do the will of the Lord. And then, like Israel, he's tempted by other loves, and he chases after other loves, and he abandons his vow to the Lord in favor of his other love, just like his people Israel. In the failures of Samson, Israel sees her own failures, and in these failures, you and I see our failures as well. We also are prone to wander from God. We are easily swayed to disobedience. We justify our own vow-breaking before the Lord. We don't take serious our commitments to Him. And as a result, we play with so many idols. So Samson's bleak behavior reflects our own bleak behavior. The big question is this, how will God respond? How does He respond to Samson? How does He respond to us? When we walk in failure, when we mess up royally, when we totally blow it, how does God respond to us? The second half of this story spells it out, and I want to show you now four ways God responds to our sinfulness. The first way God responds is this. God responds with gracious brokenness. Verses 20 and 21 highlight for us this act of God. He responds to our sin with gracious brokenness. So verse 20, Samson is still in Delilah's house. 
He's asleep in her lap. It might bring back memories of a sleeping uh, enemy of God in a tent when a woman named Jael comes and puts a tent peg through his temple. Here's Samson vulnerable in his sleep. And then Delilah says this in verse 20. She calls Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and he thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, took him down to Gaza. Finding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding in the prison. So Samson experiences the faithfulness of God in these two verses we just read. It may not jump out at us on the surface, but I promise you, God is acting in Samson's life even in this moment of colossal defeat. Samson does a lot of losing in these two verses. He loses his God. He loses his eyes. He loses his humanity. He's put to grinding in the prison. This is the work that slaves would do or even animals would do. And what exactly does it mean that the Lord left Samson at the end of verse 20? Does that mean that the Lord has now rejected Samson and kicked him out of the kingdom, forgotten Samson totally? Not at all. It simply means that God is being faithful to his covenant with his man. Covenants are agreements between God, the greater party, and us, the lesser party. They come with blessings for obedience and consequences for disobedience. So when Samson finishes destroying his vows by having his head shaved, God lets Samson have what he has pursued. It's a life out of the protection and the blessing of Yahweh. When the Lord leaves Samson, Samson hits rock bottom. Freedom gone, eyes gone, humanity gone. But in this pitiful place, he still experiences God's grace. You may already know that rock bottom is a place where so many people turn to God. And it's safe to say that this is Samson's experience. He becomes useful to God. He becomes bent towards the Lord only when everything else is taken from him. It's from this place of nothingness that Samson realizes how much he needs God. Isn't it true that sometimes we need a rock-bottom moment? Now, I don't recommend you pursue it. But when we get there, And everything is stripped from us because of our sinful choices. When we have driven our lives to that bottomless nothingness, we meet God there. When we are broken, we realize how much we need God. We realize how good He is. We realize that as long as we have Him, we have everything we need. When everything else is stripped away, we realize God is all we need. So brokenness is a gift from God. It's not the end of a story. It might be the start of your life or the life of a loved one you've been praying for for a very long time. Brokenness is where we meet God. It's a place where we experience grace in abundance. I mean, to be brought to a place where we realize how empty everything else is and how fulfilling and satisfying God is, that is a beautiful gift of grace from God. 
So God responds to our sin with gracious brokenness. Here's the second way God responds in verse 22. God responds with hope in the dark. When you and I are broken in our sin, God responds with hope in the dark. Hey, in case you didn't realize, the writer of Judges is an absolute genius. It's a brilliant body of work, start to finish. And in verses 20 and 21, we go to a very dark place. It's dark literally because Samson has lost his eyes. It's dark spiritually. It seems the Philistines are getting the upper hand. But we are not left without hope. Look at the seed of hope that's planted in verse 22. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. As the reader, we get lost in this moment where Samson is taken prisoner and and subjected to torture. But the writer wants us to know, God wants us to know that even in that darkness, there is hope that is planted and coming to fruition. His hair is starting to grow again. It's incredible. Samson seems finished. The Philistines seem to have bested him. But the Philistines have forgotten Yahweh is in this thing. They may have taken down Samson. They haven't defeated Samson's God. Far from it. And so this little line in verse 22 is a reminder that God is not done with Samson and he is not done with the Philistines and he has not forgotten his people Israel. Verse 22 is hope that God will still act not based on Samson's hair length as if he hits three inches of hair and then God says, now I'm going to do something. The magic is not in his hair. There's no magic here. There's just a faithful God to a broken servant. So here in verse 22, it's not named explicitly, but this is a verse of hope. Now, so many of us, when we think about the word hope, we use it in the same way we use the word wish. We could use those two words interchangeably most of the time. But Christian hope is very different from a wish into the great unknown. A wish is a desire with an unknown outcome. But Christian hope is confidence that God keeps his promise. Hope is not a wish. Hope is confidence that God keeps his promise. And throughout history, it has been God's way to bring his people to the end of themselves and to leave them only with his bare word as the source of their confidence and hope. Let me give you some evidence. When Abraham holds the knife over his son Isaac. God keeps his word, provides a substitute sacrifice, and his people flourish. When Moses and Israel were between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea, God kept his word and parted the waters. When God's people were faced with genocide at the hands of an evil schemer named Haman, God keeps his word and rescue came at the last minute from an unlikely heroine named Esther. And don't forget that one Friday, Jesus was killed. And his body was put in a grave. And it seemed like all hope was lost. But then three days later, he kept his word. The stone rolled away. His body walked out of that tomb alive. And if this is God's track record to infuse hope into the darkest situations then shouldn't that impact the way you and I face crisis? I say it should. Christians do not 
face crisis with a whimpering wish, but rather children of the risen King stand in resolute hope in the spoken word of God. Listen to me. What God promises, God does. You count on that. Do not forget it. Do not think your circumstances are greater than God's promise to you. In Psalm chapter 50, verse 15, he says, Call on me in your day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you will honor me. He keeps his word every time. On our darkest day, our hope is in the God who grows hair, the God who keeps his promise, who does not leave his people alone. How does God respond to our failure? With gracious brokenness, with hope in the darkness. Third, with nearness in despair. God responds to our sin with nearness in despair. Verses 23 through 28. In those verses, 23 through 28, a sick scene unfolds. The Philistines gather at the temple to their made-up fish god, Dagon. In order to worship him and celebrate this victory they've had over Samson. And so when they get together, they lift high the name of Dagon in their songs. They pull out their favorite Dagon hymns. They even write a new one in verse 24. Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands. It's disgusting. It would appear that Samson is not the only blind person in the room. All these Philistines are blinded by their idolatry. They bring Samson out. They make a spectacle of him. The passage tells us that they made Samson perform for them. I don't know precisely what that means, but my guess is it was not respectable. Samson then finds himself among the pillars that hold up the temple. And it's here with his hands planted on those pillars that Samson does something that is so out of character for him, he prays. Look at verse 28. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, O sovereign Lord, remember me. O God, please strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. In the saga of Samson, Samson only prays Two times. The first time he prays is at the end of chapter 15 after he's routed the Philistines and he's dying of thirst. And in his desperation, he prays to the Lord and the Lord opens up a spring for him and meets him in his moment of despair. This here in Dagon's temple is Samson's second prayer. And so among Dagon's pillars, In a moment of desperation, he prays for strength, and God answers that prayer. God is always near to Samson when Samson is in despair. How many times have you assumed that your hard days are evidence of God's absence? And we do this all the time. But don't we learn from Samson that God is present with us even in our hardship, especially in our hardship? I read a story recently about a man named Don Cook, and Don works for a company called Barrett. Barrett makes a rifle 
called the M107 50 caliber long range sniper rifle. You probably already knew that. And this rifle was adopted by the U.S. Army in 2002 as their preferred sniper rifle of choice. Other branches of the military have adopted it as well. It's known for its flawless reliability, but its track record is is not perfect. There's still times whenever that rifle needs repair. So in 2011, Don, the builder of these rifles, was in his workshop doing what he did every day, building guns. And his phone rang, and when he picked it up, there was a delay before he could hear the scratchy voice on the other end of the line. And calling Don was a young Marine who was in the midst of a firefight, and his rifle malfunctioned. He had been cleaning it the day before, bent something that wasn't supposed to be bent, didn't realize it, and now his rifle was not working properly. So what does the young Marine do? After asking The guy's near him and they have no clue. He gets on the phone and he calls the maker of the rifle. Don knew exactly what had gone wrong. He gave the Marine some simple instructions. 30 seconds later, the rifle was operational. The Marine said, thank you very much, hung up the phone and went back to his firefight. In the Marine's moment of help, the maker was there. That's how God is with us, near to us in our desperation, not far away, not distance. The fight, the crisis is not evidence that God is absent. You don't face your hard moments alone. God is present and he is listening and he is active. And so if you walked in here struggling today, you might just find that you are closer to God than you have ever been before. He responds to our sin with his nearness. He gives us gracious brokenness, hope and despair, a nearness in our despair, and then fourth and finally, God responds with deliverance from sin. Verses 29 through 31, God brings deliverance. The story at its end, it brings some mixed emotions, I think. Samson destroys the temple. The Philistine rulers and the people in all the temple die, as does Samson. What's most vital in this scene, though, is not all the dead Philistines or even our dead Samson, but that this false god, Dagon, has been shown to be what he really is, a figment of people's imagination. There is one true God. He is Yahweh. There is none other. Now, our Western sensibilities might recoil at this scene. We may find it too bloody, too vulgar. Couldn't there have been another way? But deliverance is always a deadly work. The Philistines are not innocent in this matter, nor are they open to treaties or dialogue. There are times when you and I need to recognize God is a mighty warrior. He's our mighty warrior, and we dare not soften him up. One writer said this, You have no comfort if the king of glory is a wimp who reeks of hand cream. You only have solace if he is your defender in the thick of war. That's who he is. 
That's what God does here. He defends his glory and he begins to bring deliverance to his people. And so this is how Samson's story ends. But do you remember how it began? Way back in chapter 13, the angel of the Lord appears to Samson's infertile mother and told her that she would have a child who would begin to save Israel. He's not going to do it entirely, but from before he was born, the news has been broadcast. This is the beginning of Israel's deliverance from the hand of the Philistines. So this story leaves the reader anxious for the one who will finish what Samson started, the one who will bring deliverance in the grand way. The problem is we don't need another Samson. We need one greater than Samson. And you and I on this side of Easter know that that one greater than Samson is Jesus Christ. And when you hold up Samson's life in comparison to Jesus' life, you'll find that there are many commonalities, but Jesus Christ surpasses Samson in every possible way in every other man-made deliverer. So here's how they're alike and not alike. Samson's mother was impregnated by her husband after a long life of infertility. Jesus is born of a virgin unlike any other conception in human history. Samson was chosen by God to deliver his people. Jesus was not chosen by God. He is God in the flesh who came to do what heroes like Samson could not do. Samson was tempted and failed as he consumed what his flesh wanted. Jesus was tempted in every way Samson was and more, and yet never sinned. Samson died among sinners. Jesus died for sinners. Samson's body was buried in his hometown. Jesus' body rose from the dead three days after he was laid in the tomb. Samson's death began the deliverance for God's people. Jesus' death completes the deliverance for God's people once and for all. You might have this impression that when you fail, you mess up, God turns against you, but doesn't Judges 16 show us something different? How does God respond to his servants who struggle in sin? Today we've talked about God's grace his hope, his nearness, and his deliverance. He doesn't smack you around and tell you to get straight, do better, walk cleaner. He comes and he picks you up. And out of compassion and love and grace, he brings you out of that sin and sets you on a path of righteousness. That's how God responds to us. How then should we respond to God? Again, Samson shows us, believe it or not, but not in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 11, this chapter of Scripture that describes great people of faith, Samson gets mentioned. Samson the train wreck, Samson the mess, Samson the failure gets mentioned in this list of heroic names, not because of his mighty deeds, but because of his simple faith in God. So it seems to me that you and I should be like Samson in this regard. This story, Judges 16, in fact, the whole Samson saga, calls us to be people of faith. We should turn from our sinful failures and trust in Jesus, the one greater than Samson, who delivers us once and for all. You are likely on a spiritual journey 
And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I hope that from Judges chapter 16, you've seen his portrait clearly. Samson's failures give us this huge platform to spotlight Jesus and all of his love and beauty and sacrifice in his promises. And so the story of Samson points us to Jesus and calls us to trust, calls us to faith in him. And he keeps his word to us that when we believe in him, he'll forgive us all our sin, he will give us eternal life, he will hold us secure forever. It's faith that changes your life, faith in Jesus. It's not baptism. It's not communion. It's not any other good religious deed. It is faith in the one who laid down his life and then rose again. When you turn from your sin, all of your irreligion and your religion, and you turn to Jesus, you let his death be your death, and then his life will be your life. You're saved forever. Then from that comes this incredible journey that includes baptism and the Lord's Supper and the church family and the mission of God to the ends of the earth. Those things all follow a life of faith in Jesus Christ. Do you know Christ as your Savior? Have you trusted in him, or do you think you're just trying to do your best to balance out the scales at the end? If there's scales at the end, I'll tell you this, yours are weighted against you entirely. You'll never budge them. But Jesus will give you the life you desire when you turn to him and trust him entirely. Sometimes even Christians need a fresh start. So I hope that Samson's life serves as a warning and an encouragement to bring you to repentance. Brother and sister, the call to all of us as readers of this passage is a call to faith. Let's leave behind our failure and let us run to our faithful God. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for your presence with us. And we all come in here bearing some sort of failure. You know, so many of us in this room, Lord, so many of my friends have been on a spiritual journey trying to understand, trying to make sense, trying to make right. Lord, I pray you would open their eyes, heal this spiritual blindness, and let them see today that their hope is in Jesus. Thank you for promising us that you will save us when we call on that name. Lord, this morning I pray that you would give boldness to my friends who are quite reserved and quite private about these matters. But a boldness and a sense of urgency that there's nothing more important this day than settling eternity. So Lord, draw them to you. May their trust be in you for their salvation. Let this be a day when new life begins. For my brothers and sisters in the faith, God, let us learn from Samson's failure and let us rejoice in your faithfulness. You are the same God today as you were in Judges 16, and we praise you for this. And so, Lord, we come with all of our failures, all of our struggles, all of our mess-ups to you who are faithful above all else. In this we praise you, in this we trust you, and we are glad to be your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray.